Hi there, and welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Leah Leibowitz, in for the inimitable Sarah Ivry. Today, the most important and most mysterious man in Israel's history, David Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion looms so large in Israel's mythology, it's like he's George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln all rolled into one. The country's founding father and the architect of many of its early and crucial achievements But maybe the comparison with America's greatest presidents is flawed, because while we love nothing more than to discover the humanity of our historical leaders, Washington chopping down that cherry tree, Jefferson and his indiscretions, Lincoln's melancholia, Ben-Gurion does not lend himself to such intimacy. He remains as inscrutable as he is inevitable. That is, until now. In a new biography clocking in at just over 250 pages, Anita Shapira, one of Israel's most accomplished historians, has delivered not just an elegant summary of Ben-Gurion's life and achievements, but also some uncommon insight into the man he was. Shapira is the recipient of the Israel Prize, the nation's highest honor, a professor of the study of Zionism and Jewish history at Tel Aviv University, and the author of numerous best-selling books, including, most recently in English, Israel, A History. I'm a huge fan, and I'm thrilled to be talking to her today. Professor Shapira, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. My first question is, is a little bit rude. You've written the biographies of some of Zionism's greatest figures. You've, you've written about Igal Alon, about the writer Brenner, about Belkas and Nelson. What took you so long to get to Ben-Gurion? Well, I always said that I prefer to write about those heroes that did not make it. Ben-Gurion made it. <laughs> but he was always present in all my biographies, especially in the biography of Berl Katzenelson, in the biography of Igal Alon. So he was there all the time, even though he was not the hero. And at long last, I came to the conclusion that it's time that I let him have the leading role that he really had. You met him, right? The book begins with, with a very charming anecdote of you taking a, a yes. small car. D- t- tell us about it, to Sdebukel, where, where yes. he spent his days. Well, I was just 25 years old, I think. I had a child, two years old, a toddler, and uh, we had a, a small car, Fiat 600, which is really small. And I wanted to interview Ben-Gurion. It was very simple. I sent him a letter by handwrite. Addressing him as what? Mr. Prime Minister? Mr. Ben-Gurion? Mr. Ben-Gurion, he was already out of office. He was living in Zdebokir, a kibbutz that at that time was at least two hours south of Beersheba that was also a very, very far town uh, in the in the Negev. And he replied on a page from a notebook that has copies, <laughs> a, a numbered page with his handwriting, and told me that I can come that Friday, Friday because my husband did not work on Friday and I, I did not work on Friday, so this was the convenient day. He was gracious to accept the day that I suggested. So we took the child and the car and we went south. It was a journey. Mm. When we arrived to Zdebokir, I went to the famous, well, I don't know how to call it, hut. The shack, yeah. Shack. And uh, my husband went to chase the child <laughs> in the fields. 
So, Paula Ben-Gurion, Ben-Gurion's wife stood at the entrance and she was very stern. What do you want here? She said. <laughs> so I said very timidly, I have an interview with Ben-Gurion. She moved aside and let me pass and said, don't tire him. <laughs> I went inside very frightened. I was never in such close quarters with the great man. So he received me very graciously in his library. Uh, he knew what I was looking for, and he opened his diaries and let me browse. And we talked, and the, the interview went on and on. I think it was about two hours. Eventually... I went back to, uh, to my husband. We took the car, we took the child and drove all the way back to Tel Aviv. It was only when I arrived to Tel Aviv that I realized that he did not answer the question that I posed him. <laughs> that, that's a skill that, that he's uh, polished over many years. I, I presume, I presume. Well, you refer to him as, as uh, you know, the great man, and by the time you met him, he certainly was. But I, I want to read to you something that you write fairly early on in the book. In describing a leader's emergence, there's usually a tendency to discern future greatness, or at least the signs of it, in an earlier period. This is not so with Ben-Gurion. It seems that for the longest time, his career was marked by a series of snubs. He was not asked to join some of the most important early Zionist organizations. He was not a particularly charismatic orator. How, how then did this skinny, short, young, unremarkable man uh, ascend to such great historical heights? Well, before I, un- I reply to your question, uh, let me tell you that Paula thought that he was destined for greatness from <laughs> the first moment she met him. Because he was, he was, they were both young when they met, right? They met yes. here in New York? Yes, they met here in New York. She was a nurse. She was superior to him. She knew English. He did not. She helped him find material at the 42nd Street Library for his book. And uh, the love blossomed. Now, how come he achieved greatness despite the very, very modest beginnings? Well, first of all, he had the quality of learning. He learned all his life, and experience was for him the most important. You say, you say learning even though he was... He did not have many chances for a formal education. Of course time. not. Of course not. He learned from reality. He read a lot of books, but what he learned from mostly was reality. He was the supreme realist among visionaries of Zionism. But even he had some major blunders, right? He, he thought early on that... The, Turk, uh, the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, would win the First World War. At some point, he proposed that all of Israel be turned into a giant kibbutz, you yes. know, nationally owned. Um, tell us a little bit about this process of, of coming, as you describe it in the book, from being just an enthusiastic, successful young politician to being a true national figure. Well, it took a long time. It took, I would say, at least three decades until... 
in my opinion, he had the stature of a statesman in 1935 when he became the chairperson of the uh, Zionist organization of the Sochnut, of the Jewish agency, which was the equivalent of a prime minister of a stateless people. Now, until then, he was a partisan politician. He defended the Histadrut Labor Federation. He defended his own party. He was very, very oppositional. But slowly but surely, he realized that he needed to accommodate at least 80% of his followers, of the, the followers of Zionism. And in order to get to that point, he had to learn to compromise. And this we see when he tries to, fi to find a way to an agreement with the revisionist party uh, via Jabotinsky, and later on that he realized that in order to have a steady coalition, he had to woo the, religious, the Zionist religious party to join him in the Zionist executive because otherwise he would never have the broad public support that he needed. And he understood that so well all the time that he needed to keep, despite his stormy nature, despite his inclination to outbursts, despite his, uh, I would say, argumentativeness. And he liked the fight. Mm. He enjoyed it. Nevertheless, he never went to the point that would break the relationships. And for him, keeping, I would say, 80%, 70 to 80% of the populace uh, following him was a major achievement. I, I want to ask you a little bit more um, in a bit about some of, of these uh, partisan uh, quibbles that you mentioned. Uh, but before then, I, I was wondering if you could kind of help me understand what has always been one of the most baffling things to me. So here he is. Uh, he comes to Palestine as a fairly young man. Uh, it's the 1910s, right? Uh, and he is active uh, in a Zionist landscape with a lot of parties that seem to believe two ideas that are strangely uh, maybe will appear inconsistent. There are Zionists believing in some sort of national revival, and there are socialists beholden That's to some right. sort of international. How, how how does that come together? What did these people believe, or how do these people believe they could they could uh, square both these principles? Well, put, to put it simply, they believe that the Jewish people deserve and need a political entity of their own in Palestine, and that this entity had to be built on equality, democracy, and you name it, socialism. It was not socialism in the way that you think about uh, communist Russia or even social democracy, on the other hand. It was something much more uh, emotional, much more attracting the senses, the feeling that 
we are on the right side of history and we want a society that would be exemplary and this was the spirit of the times and and this uh, this zeal swept Ben-Gurion too he he went uh, and tried out uh to be a a agricultural worker yes uh, of course how did that turn out for him well first of all he was not a great worker <laughs> he he was uh, frail and he contracted malaria and anyway do you know how difficult it is to work 12 hours a day in the sun of palestine in the fields it's impossible not to mention the fact that it's terribly boring idealism aside he could not keep it for a long time and it was only a few months after arrival that he already wrote to his father I am not going to be an uh, agricultural laborer. I am going to be a leader of the laborers. <laughs> he knew what he wanted. With, with true genius. Uh, yes. and, and then uh, he becomes involved with, with partisan politics. And as you mentioned, one of the most bitter disputes that he had uh, was with the right-wing uh, revisionists um, for whom he had no love. He famously called Vladimir Zhabotinsky, their leader, Vladimir Hitler, Um, and as you write, interestingly, was far from discouraging violence when, when labor activists That's clashed with the right. revisionists. So I, I want to ask you this. Um, why was he so opposed to Jabotinsky? Was he just playing political hardball or was there something, a more deep conviction at play, something about the right wing, the revisionists that, that bothered him? Two things. First of all, there was the political competition for the souls of the younger generation. And labor Zionism had to compete on the right against the revisionists, on the left against the communists. And it was a bitter competition on both sides. So we have to understand that he was a political animal, and as such, he did not hesitate to fight strongly if needed. On the other hand, We have to understand the spirit of the times. We are talking about the late 20s, the beginning of the 30s. We see the rise of fascism in Italy, in Germany, the rise of Nazism. The world was divided between left and right. They became code words that symbolized identity. So... To identify with the socialists, with the left, meant that you fought all the way against the right and vice versa. So we have to understand the spirit of the times. Everybody was so passionate about politics. But th this particular animosity hardly dissipated, did it? So even after the state was established, I'm thinking of June 48, Ben-Gurion, uh, then sort of the, the prime minister, uh, still exerted his authority uh, on his critics from the right. I'm, I'm talking about, uh, of course, the Altalena affair. Could, could you tell us a little bit about it and, and more importantly, why it still resonates so strongly today? The Altalena affair, to put it simply, was a case in which the young state of Israel, I think it was a few weeks old, uh, for the first time showed its muscles 
against dissident groups. Tell us the story. So, so here was this ship, the Altalena, coming yeah. in with weapon shipment. Yes. In a time of a short truce in the fighting of the 48th War, we were not supposed to bring into the country uh, weapons. There were UN uh, observers that were supposed to watch against it. But this ship disembarked from France without the leader of the Irgun, uh, Menachem Begin, knowing of it. Anyway, the ship, when he learned that the ship is about to arrive, he notified the authorities of the army. And they came into a, an agreement. Begin did. Yes, that the ship would not come to Tel Aviv because there you have the UN observers. It would go to a small beach in Kfar Vitkin, to the north of Tel Aviv. It did not happen this way because I think that there were people in the Irgun that did not accept this verdict of history. And they, at a certain moment... Meaning they, that it was, it was Ben-Gurion and the labor Zionists in charge yes, and not the right-wing revisions. Yes, I think they wanted to keep a separate force within the country uh, and to keep the uh, part of the weapons to themselves. And an uh, authoritative government, a government that has power, cannot agree to the monopoly of weapons to be shared with a, uh, another organization, especially that it is dissident, etc., etc. So at a certain point, there were skirmishes on the shore. The ship uh, started to go to Tel Aviv. And in Tel Aviv, in full view of UN observers and everybody in Tel Aviv, it went ashore. And uh, there, there were clashes between people in the ship and people on the shore. And at the same time, the people of the Irgun that were already in the army left their positions and came to help the their ship. The brothers on the ship. Yes. And here Ben-Gurion had a show of his leadership because he and he alone passed a resolution that he is entitled to use force if he thinks necessary. And he gave the order to the army to use force to overtake the ship. And uh, we know that uh, there were people killed there, and uh, it was a very traumatic event because the idea that three years after the Holocaust, Jews are fighting against Jews, this was something against all the rules. But for Ben-Gurion, this was a test of the authority of the state. And uh, since then, whenever somebody challenges the authority of the state, we are looking for Ben-Gurion to take the leadership. We still did not find him. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that today there are groups that challenge the government, that, do, that overlook orders and laws, and 
actually the government shies away from its duty and authority. And this is something that Ben-Gurion would not accept. G- give me an example. Who are some of these groups and how do you think Ben-Gurion would, would handle such, such crises? I don't want to go into politics, but let me put it like that. There were a number of times where the uh, settlers in the West Bank challenged the government, did things against government orders, and eventually the government surrendered. This was something that Ben-Gurion would not accept. And in this regard, I miss Ben-Gurion. And we have no one in, in his... In his image, we have no one, you think, in, in the political constellation who learned that lesson? Right now, I don't see it. Right now, I don't see it. It's interesting, though. One, one of the, one of the um, revelations uh, for me personally was, was uh, in the book was your description of how he could be incredibly fierce in his political infighting and made a completely – uh, stark distinction between the personal and the political. He yeah. would attack someone in the press one day and then that afternoon say, hey, friend, you know, how are you? And, and he would actually mean that. Yes, and this was something that his contemporaries did not understand. He could argue very fiercely f- f- on the podium of the Knesset against somebody. The worst uh, d- uh, dispute possible and then he would uh, would uh, not understand why the uh, the other guy would not uh, talk to him <laughs> after the session because he differentiated between the political and the personal but he kept a distance for most people and the number of people that he revealed himself to them was very small and it became smaller as time went by. And it's a pity because, you know, Amos Oz read the book and he said to me, I never imagined how lonely this man was. And it comes out. Yes, he was very lonely. One of his loneliest moments, which you describe very well, is, well, two moments. Uh, one after the, the UN vote deciding for the establishment of the state in 47, but the other just before, the day before uh, the Friday in which the state is actually announced in May of 48. And Ben-Gurion writes in his diary that he felt like a mourner among the joyful. Why so serious? Why, what did he feel was at stake? What did he see that others maybe weren't? Well, while everybody was in the streets dancing and uh, enjoying the moment, he knew what is in stock because he knew that the war is coming and he knew that this is going to be a war to life or death. Now, just think about it. I always, I always think about it. Three years after the end of the Second World War, three years after the Holocaust, he took a gamble on the existence 
of, I would say, the last hope of the Jewish people in Palestine. And he was the only person capable of taking such a decision. Because, again, something that, was not, that Jews never did. Since the time of the Bar Kokhva mutiny, no one, no Jew gave orders to Jews to go to battle and get killed. And here Ben-Gurion, the little man from the backward small town in Poland, takes it upon his shoulders to send young men and women to death. This was a very momentous moment. It's a very interesting style of leadership you're describing. It is, you capture it by saying, it is, um, involves being the supreme uh, realist who always, always, always sees what's possible with uh, short flirtations with what's impossible. That's right. I, I, I would put it differently. He was a person that all his life felt the clash between what he would like to and what he could. And this clash was the reason for his outburst, this feeling of inadequacy, of being encumbered by, by, by reality. And eventually he learned slowly to live with reality. But it was a difficult process, very difficult process. And reality was not always very kind to him. I mean, the, 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 the way your book ends, obviously being a biography, is with uh, uh, this incredible visionary having uh, established a state, having taken this huge gamble single-handedly. And now there is a Jewish state, and now it's functioning. And now there's really not that much of a need for Ben-Gurion, and That's he's in right. his little shack. So is his story a tragedy? Is it a sad one? Well, I would say that any great leader eventually ends deserted and a tragic figure, if you wish. What about Churchill? What about de Gaulle? Even Roosevelt, at the end of his life, had it not died. <laughs> so old age is not good for great leaders. <laughs> I want to ask you one final question, and it's, it's not uh, a very fair one to ask historians who, who document what actually happened. But uh, what do you think uh, he would have to say had he the opportunity to glance at the state he built? today? He would be both amazed and chagrined. He would be amazed because he never imagined such a strong, populated, economically sound state like Israel these days. On the other hand, he would be very upset by the feeling that of no leadership that is today very strong in Israel. And in this regard, he would be very worried because 
the idea that a leadership is what keeps the people together was very strong in his ideology. And uh, he would be worried, as we are worried. <laughs> And on that happy note, Professor Anita Shapira, thank you so much. Thank you. Anita Shapira teaches history at Tel Aviv University. Her most recent book is titled simply Ben-Gurion. It's out this month from Yale University Press's Jewish Live series, which sponsored this podcast. Fox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Leah Leibowitz. Sarah Ivry will be back next week. 